ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. You're listening to the second season of Breakdown, an exclusive podcast by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. This season, Death in a Hot Car, Mistake or Murder. Go to AJCBreakdown.com for additional background, photos, video, and more on the Justin Ross Harris case. Previously on Breakdown. We have all worked very hard. No one wants to have to start this process over. However... I think more importantly, no one wants us to have any question at all in our minds that Ross Harris was provided a fair and impartial trial by jury in this case. The idea of a jury is at the core of our system. And we're one of the few countries in the world that still retains the right to jury trials. And the one qualifying thing is that those juries should be impartial and fair between the state and the defendant. So we're gonna be out possibly in some rural area. What kind of accommodations are they gonna be for us? It's not that we can't do this. Venue has changed regularly, but y'all need to think about this. Think about the expense to the taxpayers. I want you to think about the wear and tear on all of us if we pick up and go somewhere else. We're back. I'm Bill Rankin, legal affairs writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Four months ago, the Justin Ross Harris trial came to a screeching halt just before the jury was seated. On what was likely the last day of a three-week process, the judge suddenly decided to change the venue of the trial. At that late date, Judge Mary Staley Clark decided she couldn't find a fair and impartial jury in Harris's home county. To say that the juror questionnaires show a pervasive knowledge and extreme opinions that are negative to the defendant is frankly an understatement. And then the testimony. They come to court and the testimony corroborates uh, what the questionnaires show. And this courtroom has not been a place of mild opinions. So now we're, well, at the beach. We're traveling 300 miles to Little Brunswick, Georgia. From the coastal marshes of Brunswick, it's a mere 10 miles out over the causeway to lovely St. Simons Island and the Atlantic Ocean. Next island over is Jekyll, with its broad sweeping beaches on the Atlantic coast and its driftwood graveyard on the northern tip. If Jekyll is homey and inviting, which it is, you can also visit Opulence Personified on Sea Island, which is adjacent to and a hemisphere away from St. Simons. If you have to ask, you can't afford it. These three islands are all part of Glen County and commonly referred to as 
the Golden Isles. Not that I'll be seeing much of this during the trial, but let me tell you a thing or two about George's Barrier Islands. My old friend and former AJC colleague, Charlie Seabrook, describes them as sun-spangled, hard-packed, sandy beaches, some of the most pristine islands on the Atlantic. Behind the dunes are great maritime forests. They're dominated by pines, palmettos, and giant live oaks with huge trunks and limbs festooned with Spanish moss and tangles of wild grapevine. On the island's western side are sweeping salt marshes dominated by smooth cordgrass. It's amber and glowing in the fall, and when the sun hits that marsh grass a certain way, it turns a bright gold, hence the name, George's Golden Isles. Like I said, I won't be able to see them from the courtroom, but at least I'll know they're out there. So let's get to the point. If the judge couldn't find a fair jury in Marietta, Georgia, what sort of jury will she find in Brunswick? Well, first of all, the pool will be smaller. Cobb County has 741,000 people. Glenn County, of which Brunswick is the county seat, about 84,000. And as reliably conservative as Cobb County is, Glenn County is even farther to the right. Let's start with the gigantic Federal Law Enforcement Training Center in Brunswick. It covers 1,600 acres, offers 18 shooting ranges, and has its own zip code, and hundreds of full-time federal employees who think, act, and vote like cops. In other words, a prosecutor's dream. Otherwise, Glenn County has lots of retired people. Some of them are very rich retired people. Some of them are middle-class retired people but almost one in five residents is a senior citizen, also a prosecutor's dream. I, I would think that if this guy comes to Glen County, and, and evidently y'all are coming, and he gets tried down, he will, he will get a fair trial in Glen County. These, our jurors will give him the time of the day. They will give him the consideration that his case deserves. That's Alan Tucker, a criminal defense attorney who has been practicing in Brunswick since 1982. Tucker has good reason to like Glen County juries. He's won four jury acquittals in murder cases over the years. Well, Glen County community is made up of wealthy retirees from Sea Island, middle-class retirees from St. Simons and Jekyll, some wealthy retirees from Brunswick, blue-collar retirees who worked the mills their entire lives, or retirees who grew up here and have nowhere else to go. And then we have a college that's here, so we have a bunch of young people attending our four-year college. And then, of course, we have blue-collar workers, white-collar workers, Gulfstream, paper mills, bankers, lawyers, medical field. We've got a, just about every part of a society that you could think of here in Glen County in a very small area because you know, we live in a beautiful place on God's planet. A lot of people want to come here. Remember, it's called jury selection, but it's more like deselection. Both sides try to winnow a large pool down to the least objectionable 12 people, plus some alternates. So you're not really picking jurors to hear the case. You're trying to get rid of jurors you don't want to hear the case. Tucker offers some insights into the kind of folks both sides will be looking for or trying to avoid. Of course, you wouldn't want someone with young children. You probably wouldn't want a, a wife with a young child that's been cheated on by her husband. You may want some men who don't have children at all. While you're looking for the man who doesn't have any children, the DA's office is looking for a woman with young children who's been cheated on, so you're striking her and he's striking the man, and somehow you get stuck with a bunch of them in between. As I've told you before, many attorneys believe the case is decided by the time the jury is seated. Do you want to know how concerned the prosecution is about the jury? Glad you asked. 
Here's how concerned. It turns out that someone took out a classified ad in the Brunswick News that ran over several weeks in midsummer. The ad ran under the heading, Reasonable Doubt, and it recommended that anyone interested in the Ross Harris case should listen to the Breakdown podcast. Yes, that's what you're doing right now, listening to Breakdown. No, we did not take out the ad, honestly. But the prosecution sure wanted to know who did. So it got the court to sign off on a subpoena to the Brunswick newspaper. The subpoena ordered the paper's advertising director to divulge the name, address, and phone number of the person who took out the ad and how much the person paid for it. Really? The newspaper complied, reluctantly. I called Tim O'Brien, the paper's executive editor. He said just what you'd expect. He'd never before been served a subpoena for a classified ad. He said the subpoena, and I quote, raised the hairs on the back of my neck and my first instinct was to get with the lawyers and figure out how to quash it, end quote. But the paper's lawyers noted, this didn't involve journalism such as protecting a confidential source. Instead, it was a business transaction and businesses are frequently compelled to disclose customer information. So the paper handed it over. Cobb County District Attorney Vic Reynolds told me the subpoena was issued to determine whether the person who took out the ad was a potential Glenn County juror or someone connected to the Harris case. As it turned out, he said, the person didn't live in the county and was not involved in the case. So the matter was dropped. The identity of the person who bought the ad has not been publicly disclosed, so we still don't know who it was. But whoever you are, we sure appreciate it. At its heart, the Harris case revolves around two questions. First, did Ross Harris deliberately leave his 22-month-old son Cooper to die a horrible death in the back of his sweltering SUV? Second, if it was an accident, how on earth could he have forgotten his child? The prosecution is banking on jurors turning that over in their minds. If he didn't do it on purpose, how did it happen? Who would do that? Here's Brunswick attorney Alan Tucker again. How do you forget that your child's in the car? I don't understand that. But hell, we had a school bus driver here two weeks ago on the first day of school leave a child in the bus all day long or forgot to drop the child off at home and took her to the bus yard and they found her there late in the afternoon. She was fine when they found her. I mean, it it could have been a tragedy. And it often is. A lot more often than you might think. Developing this morning, overnight police arrested and charged the father of 15-month-old twin girls. The girls died after officers say someone left them in a hot car. This was the awful case in early August involving Asa Martell North. He left his twin daughters in his SUV in Carrollton, Georgia. Under the baking Georgia sun, both children died. When the girls were discovered, neighbors tried desperately to surround them with ice in a plastic pool in the backyard but there was no bringing them back. Paramedics rushed them to the local hospital where they were pronounced dead. North, who faces second-degree murder charges, told police he had been drinking inside the house that day and simply forgot about the twins. But this happens to parents who are not drinking or using drugs or doing anything other than what busy working parents do. Jan Null is a research meteorologist at San Jose State University. For more than a decade, He has been involved in the study of hot cars and how many children die in them. He first got involved in the issue when there was a death in the San Francisco Bay Area, and he was asked to determine how hot the car might have gotten that day. In the years since, 
He has documented nearly 700 cases of children dying in hot cars. His website is called noheatstroke.org. He talked to me about the impact of the Harris case. The trend that we have seen this year is less than what we've seen over the last 15 years, but it's still more than we saw last year. Last year, there, in 2015, there were a total of 24 deaths nationwide. Uh, this year, there have been already 28. We still have, you know, a couple warm months to go, and uh, so that number will probably rise somewhat. Hopefully not to the long-term average, which is 37. There has been a drop-off in, in the last few years, and I think this may be partially the result of the publicity, the awareness campaigns uh, that we've seen related to the interest in the Justin Ross Harris case. Null said of the 22 deaths so far this year, the case of the Carrollton twins stands out as especially tragic, and he ticked off some other cases that troubled him. Particularly tragic, um, though all of these are tragic, there was a a two-year-old boy left in his parents' car outside a Dallas church as they attended services earlier this year. Uh, There was some confusion about who was supposed to get the child out of the car. No one did, and uh, they came back out um, a short time later after a Bible study and uh, found, found their little boy dead. One-and-a-half-month-old little boy died in a hot car in Rome, New York. He was the son of a, um, of a Rome, New York police officer. This really happens to all sorts of people. There is really no single demographic that jumps out and says, okay, this particular type of case happens to these type of people. The pattern that strikes him most forcefully is that there is no pattern to such cases. The distribution of fathers to mothers is fairly close. Um, it's 34% have been, have been fathers of the children accidentally forgotten in cars, and 29% are moms. So there is not a big disparity one way or the other, which I find very interesting. And then the rest of the percentages are spread out through child care providers, grandparents, and babysitters and things like that. He also finds no rhyme or reason to the way such cases are handled by the justice system. The New York police officer, for example, he was not charged. In looking at the justice system and how these are handled, they are certainly all over the map. And even adjacent jurisdictions, I've seen lots of different outcomes from decisions to not prosecute, to prosecute them as as manslaughter or murder. Take these two cases. They provide a striking contrast of how inconsistent we are about such tragedies. On May 11th this year, Amy Bryant, left her two-year-old daughter Caroline to die in her hot car in Madison County, Mississippi. Only eight days later, in Grenada County, Mississippi, Joshua Lewis Blunt left his eight-month-old daughter Shania to die in his car. Blunt now faces second-degree murder charges, but a grand jury recently declined to indict Amy Bryant. And there's also this. Friday, a Garland County jury acquitted Wade Naramore 13 months after Naramore's son Thomas died in the backseat of his hot car. If you've listened to season two of Breakdown, I'm sure you haven't forgotten this case. Arkansas Judge Wade Naramore left his 18-month-old son Thomas in his car in July of 2015 on a day of 101-degree temperatures. Naramore was charged with negligent homicide, a misdemeanor, and faced up to a year in jail if convicted. In August this year, 
Naramore was acquitted at trial. Naramore's 911 call to the police is unforgettable. We played it in episode one this season, and we're going to replay part of it now. 911, state your emergency. Uh, my son's in the car, and, uh, and I, uh, he's taking that long. Listen, listen to me. Where are you located? I'm at the intersection of James and Fair Oaks, please. I think he's dead. Let me get you to the city. Hang on. No! 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 911. It's very hard to take, but it's also a stark reminder of how truly horrific these cases are. There happens to be an interesting parallel between the Naramore case and the Justin Ross Harris case. David Diamond testified at Naramore's trial, and you'll hear from him at Harris's trial next month. Ocean breeze, tropical beach. An air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC. David Diamond is a neuroscientist and psychology professor at the University of South Florida. He has spoken extensively on this issue of children being left in hot cars. He's also coined the term forgotten baby syndrome. Dr. Diamond was an important witness for us in in our case. I think it's clear from comments in the media about cases like this nationally that everybody's sort of automatic uh, reaction is, I don't understand how this could happen. You know, I could never leave my child in a car. That's Erin Casanelli, one of Judge Naramore's defense attorneys. She said the defense team chose to call Dr. Diamond to educate the jury about how and why this kind of tragedy occurs. Here's Casanelli explaining what Diamond told the Naramore jury. And I suspect you'll hear much of the same thing at the Ross Harris trial. What he taught us and taught the jury was that the why is related to how all of our brains operate. And he was able to describe this to the jury in a way that non-neuroscientists could understand, which was very important. He explained how the perspective memory portions of our brain have at times compete with the habit memory parts of our brain. And the habit memory part of our brain is what we generally lay people consider sort of going on autopilot. Sure, most people can um, identify with having done that at some point uh, in their lives relative to uh, many different circumstances, like maybe forgetting to go to the grocery store on the way home as you'd planned or leaving the cup on top of your car you had intended to get it before you drove away. The habit memory part of your brain can kick in to sort of suppress the perspective memory parts of your brain. And those parts of your brain are the parts that allow you to plan for the future, maintain awareness of your plan, and remember the details of the plan that you intend to execute. Um, So that's the basics for why this can happen. It's because all of us have brains that operate this way. Diamond also explained the various circumstances that tend to be present in most of the tragic hot car death cases. The factors and circumstances that he discussed are things like a change in routine, a change in route, sleep deprivation, stress or distraction, and lack of cues. 
And when those factors or circumstances are present uh, in connection with each other, they have an effect on our brain that is to suppress our perspective memory and allow our habit memory to take over. He described all of those things in great detail and in a way that was very understandable to a layperson. In fact, we had a juror who spoke with some some local media after, and and she commented that he was a very intelligent person and a very effective witness, and that they appreciated being provided the information to understand how this happens and what we need to do to prevent it. That was a critical part of his testimony. Diamond also told jurors how the lack of cues are often a factor. A cue could be putting the diaper bag in plain view in the passenger seat next to you or putting your briefcase in the back where the car seat is. Those cues help you remember your child's in the back. In Mr. Naramore's particular case, he typically had a bag breakfast and his briefcase next to his child. But on this particular day, he didn't. And so those cues were absent. A lot of what Dr. Diamond addressed was the lack of cues and the need for parents to accept that their brains work just like the next parent's brain, that they are susceptible to their brain betraying them. Um, But we need to be looking at this from a different perspective than we have been. This is not an issue of criminality, but a public health crisis. And if we can't accept it for what it is and address it in that way, then we are putting our children at risk. Here's what Casanelli said about the verdict. I was thrilled to know that these jurors didn't let any of the outside pressure or perception influence their judgment. They listened, they were thoughtful, and they followed the law, and they did the right thing. Of course, Naramore's defense team didn't have to confront what cop prosecutors will present in the Harris case, that he was sexting with other women while Cooper was dying in the hot car, his serial philandering, and allegations he sent photos of his genitalia to young girls. On the same day Wade Naramore was acquitted, August 19th, Judge Mary Staley Clark held the final pretrial hearing in the Harris case. Cobb County prosecutors and Harris's defense team were squabbling over Diamond's testimony at the upcoming trial. Assistant District Attorney Chuck Boring disclosed that Diamond had interviewed Harris in jail after Cooper's death. He also disclosed what Diamond would like to tell Harris's jury. The expert opinion that the, this expert would intend to give would be as to intent and say that based on his review of uh, looking at statements and talking to the defendant and going to the scene and things like that, he wants to give an opinion that he uh, does not think that it was intentional, but it was a failure of memory systems. Dr. Diamond testifies about this issue a lot all over the country. Uh, And while he may have some information regarding memory and brain systems, uh, his testimony as to the intent of the defendant is completely excludable. Uncharacteristically, Harris's defense attorney, Maddox Kilgore, agreed. Sort of. Now, we'll acknowledge that certainly the um, summary that was provided to the state suggested that Dr. Diamond would be in a position to give uh, an opinion that uh, this was not intentional, and that is, in fact, his opinion. We will make it clear to Dr. Diamond and any witness that that, that is not appropriate for them to use that specific language. We agree on what the law is, but I believe that the witness absolutely can testify to his opinion that based on his experience that that what happened here was the result of a failure of memory systems. A jury can decide if they want whether it was an accident, whether it was intentional, 
whether it was malice, whether it was criminal negligence. That's the ultimate issue. That pretrial hearing in August also gave us a foretaste of the trial. First, we learned that Harris's SUV, a 2011 Hyundai Tucson, would be presented as evidence at trial. Here's Boring telling the judge why this would be necessary. What we're asking you to allow us to do, as we should be allowed to under the law, is allow the jury to look at the murder weapon. That's exactly what this is. The state alleges that car was the murder weapon. All I asked was to bring the car down and let the jury look at it. Defense attorney Kilgore didn't agree on this one. He said showing the car is unnecessary. But Judge Staley Clark said she'll allow the jury to see the vehicle. Still, she said she wanted to have more discussion as to how that will happen. The next point of contention at the hearing was a 3D animation of the alleged crime scene prepared for the prosecution. Chuck Boring argued that since the jury can't be taken to the scene, now that the trial has been moved 300 miles away, jurors will still need to see how things unfolded at the Home Depot office parking lot on that June day in 2014. The next best thing, he said, is the three-dimensional computer animation. A contractor created it by using a 3D laser scanner to capture both the parking lot and the vehicle itself, inside and out. And I can assure you, Judge, one thing the state is going to do in this case when we do introduce this is to point out, A, we're not trying to show exactly how the acts happened inside that car. It's merely to be demonstrative. We're not showing the child moving around in the car, uh, not showing the defendant in the car looking at the child, uh, him turning his head in any way. So there are a number of things that would could have played into that and could have been something uh, for dramatic effect that are not the case. As you saw, Judge, those 3D scans are about as sanitized as you can get. We're not trying to show this is exactly what happened. We're merely trying to show the scene and how it appeared. Judge, there is no way a jury is going to confuse the 3D scale model and diagram with reality in this case. But in some sequences of the animation, Harris's SUV has no roof and no windows, permitting unobstructed views inside the car. In this rendering, it is impossible not to see Cooper sitting in a bright red rear-facing car seat. Does that sound a little misleading? Kilgore sure thought so. It creates a mental image, and that's the danger of this kind of evidence in front of a jury. It's creating a mental image, image out of nothing. Not, no, not just nothing. Out of stuff that doesn't exist, such as a car with no top on it, such as a car with no windows, such as a car with no, no back to it. <coughs> the purpose of this evidence, this creation, is so that the juries always, when they think back in that jury room, they're gonna see it. And in their mind, they're gonna think, anybody, we had to, had to been able to see this car seat from anywhere. Gosh, we could see it, I could see it. And that's the reason why they wanna use it. That's what it's for. It's absolutely misleading. It is in no way accurate whatsoever. I, I, I think the record is as crystal clear as it can be that it is clearly not accurate. Uh, what you've seen is, is not accurate. We don't have any, <clears throat> uh, there's not going to be any evidence in this trial that Mr. Harris came in on a helicopter and was looking down on the vehicle. There's just not from any angle whatsoever. There's not going to be any evidence before this court that he ever walked up to a vehicle that didn't have a top on it or that didn't have windows. It is misleading of the highest sort, of the very highest sort.
and I ask this court to um, exclude this uh, animation creation from the trial of the case. At the hearing, Judge Staley Clark deferred a decision on the animation. But remember, she's known widely as a prosecutor's judge. So perhaps it's no surprise that she later signed an order, prepared by Boring, agreeing to let it into evidence. The court finds the animation is not a video reenactment or simulation of a crime, the order said. It's a demonstrative aid for the jury and will help them understand spatial proximity, distance, and testimony of witnesses. This would not be possible with the use of photos and video evidence alone, the order said. Well, let's pretend for argument's sake that the roof is still on the car, as it was that day. Harris went out to lunch with friends and, on the way back, stopped at a Home Depot store for some light bulbs. He had his friends drop him off near the SUV, and security video shows him opening the car door and tossing the light bulbs on the front seat. Although his son was dying, perhaps already dead, inside the car, Harris insists that he didn't notice him. The lead police investigator on the case, Phil Stoddard, previously gave what seemed to be devastating testimony about this moment. He said this at Harris's probable cause hearing, less than two weeks after Cooper's death. So when he comes back to the car, what does he do? What the happens? car pulls up, um, and from interviewing the two friends he went to lunch with, um, he, they pull up, he gets out of the car, they immediately take off. Um, you can see him walk up to the car, he approaches the car from the driver's side, approaches his car, opens up the driver's side door, and he kind of tosses the, um, the light bulbs inside. He's all the way inside the frame, but he just kind of tosses the light bulbs inside the car. When he approaches, does it appear, is this video, can you describe to the judge how it appears he reaches in and where his head is? When he reaches in, he comes up, he opens up the door, and as he's reaching in, he kind of turns his head a little bit. Um, he's in there, he has a clear view, and he kind of turns his head and then just tosses the light bulbs into the car. Well, that was incredibly damaging because it suggested that Harris must have seen Cooper inside the car and did nothing about it. Incredibly damaging, but also wrong. If you'll remember, we went over this in episode two. Well, at this most recent hearing in August, nearly two years after the probable cause hearing, Detective Stoddard finally got it right. That afternoon, um, I saw a vehicle pull up to the vehicle, up to, I saw a car pull up to the Hyundai at 12.41, 42 hours. Um, Mr. Harris returns to his parked vehicle. He gets out of his friend's vehicle. He walks up to the door. 12.42, 12, he opens the driver's side door. He walks into the frame. He throws a bag of light bulbs, we found out later, into the vehicle. His head stays above the car. He backs off, he shuts the door and then he walks into the treehouse complex. In other words, Harris didn't have a clear view inside the car. Unless, of course, the car had no roof. Kidding aside, prosecutors are likely to argue that there's one other possible explanation for why Harris didn't look inside the car. He didn't want to, because he knew what he would see. Jury selection is to begin September 12th. Judge Staley Clark has said she'll give the attorneys two weeks to find 12 jurors and some alternates. Then, the court is scheduled to take a week off. This is, after all, the beach. If all goes as planned, the trial in chief will begin October 3rd. I'll be back to you after we get a jury. Then, we'll provide weekly updates during the trial. 
Thanks so very much for returning to Breakdown after the hiatus. On to Brunswick. The county is, is meeting the financial burden. The, the judge and the prosecutors are there. You're pulling a jury pool from that venue, so they're not necessarily inconvenienced. It's a big inconvenience on everybody, but it's an opportunity, again, to reinforce the cornerstone of our system, and that is a fair and impartial jury. Let's not lose sight of that. Season two of Breakdown, Death in a Hot Car, Mistake or Murder, is a production of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. The story is reported and told by Bill Rankin, produced by Richard Hallix. Audio production by Chris Basta of Bare Knuckles Creative. The music for Breakdown was composed and performed by Bo Emerson, Chris Nicholson, and Chris Basta. Special thanks to Bert Roten, Ross Cavett, Chris Nicholson, and Buddy Hall. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word, AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.